Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Turn with me to Mark, Mark chapter 15, to Mark chapter 15. We'll be starting in that 24th verse. When you found Mark chapter 15, verse 24, if you'd be so kind as to stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word this morning. Mark chapter 15, verse 24, and it reads like this. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above his head. It said, the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who will destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. And come down from that cross. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He who saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he cried out like this and breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Father, this morning we have worshipped you through our time together, through our singing, as praises were so wonderfully lifted up to you. Now we open your word. We listen for your voice to speak to us. Open our hearts and minds that we may hear, make very little of me and very much of you this morning, that we may hear your still small voice. This we pray in the name of your precious Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. Jesus has been in the garden all night long, if you remember from last week, and he's agonized over what was about to come upon him. He had prayed to his father, Father, let this cup pass. Yet in that garden, in prayer to his father, he had come into agreement with God that God's will be done. He had come into agreement that that cup was his to drink. In his final moments in the garden, he wakes up his disciples. If you remember in Mark 14, just ahead of that, back in the 41st verse, it says, then he came the third hour and he said, or the third time, and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. 
The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of the sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus had woken those disciples a third time and he says to them, Our work in the garden is done. And fast approaching is my betrayer. As he made that statement, I can imagine all eyes turned to look at the mass as they came down from that city, as they could look across from the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, and they could see them coming because there were very many. It wasn't just a few people that came. There were a lot of folks who came that day to capture Jesus in the middle of the night there in the garden, and they were led by his betrayer. In its final moments there, I can only imagine as all eyes turned to look at the masses that were coming, Jesus thought about what was ahead for him. Jesus' heart at that moment turned to the cross. That was staring him in the face. So this morning, we're going to gather for six hours at the cross. Six hours at the cross. And let's focus on a particular character that was standing at the foot of that cross. It was one guy not mentioned by name, but mentioned by title alone. It was a centurion. There was a centurion, it tells us there in the passage that we read, that was standing at the foot of that cross watching all that was happening. Yet that was not the first place the centurion came into this play, came into this scene. For you see, the first place that we see the centurion coming, even though he's not mentioned, would be when they came to capture the criminal. The very first place that the centurion would have been a part of this this epic play in history was when they came to capture the criminal. Jesus had told his disciples that the last hour had come, that his betrayer was at hand. He said there in, in Mark 14, 43, as I just read, look, there, there comes my betrayer. It says that Judas came. It says earlier in Scripture that Judas had been with Jesus in that upper room where they had left, where they had left to come to that Garden of Gethsemane. He had been gathered there with all of his disciples, if you remember. He had been gathered around in that upper room with them, eating, partaking of of a meal and having converted that Passover into communion by breaking the bread and saying, this is my body, by taking a cup and passing it and saying, this is my blood. My body's going to be broken. My blood's going to be spilled out that you may be saved forever. He's converted this whole Passover that everybody was in town to, to a celebration of what he was about to do. Next Sunday morning, we're going to partake in that. The table that is before me says, do this in remembrance of me. We call this the Lord's table, the Lord's supper table. He had been there with them. But if you remember the story, as he sat there with those disciples and was about to partake, he mentioned something. He said, there's going to be one of you guys that are going to betray me. There's going to be one of you right here in this room with me. There's going to be one of you that are going to turn me over. If you remember in, in uh, John, in John 13, uh, 13 chapter, 26 verse, it says, once they had said, look, who is it? Is it me? Could, could it be me? They were all around the room going, is it I? It says, Jesus answered, 
It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. See, that night as they had gathered for the the Lord's Supper, for the time together, the fellowship before Jesus would head to the cross, he had dismissed Judas. He had said, you go. You do that which Satan has grabbed a hold of you to do. You go and you do this quickly. See, Judas, whenever he came, came with a multitude, a multitude of people. If you read the Gospels, you see that among them were the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. Uh, They came, if you remember, ready for battle. It says they came with clubs. They came armed to get this Jesus. Also with them were the unmentioned. For you see, they were coming to capture a criminal, yet they didn't have the power to subdue this criminal. That was in Rome's hands. So with them would have come a legion. The smallest number, this century of soldiers, the smallest number in the Roman army would have been dispatched to go alone because they were looking to put Jesus to death and the church didn't have the power. Only Rome held that power. So with them would have come this century of of guards. That's where we get the name Centurion. He is the leader of those. He is head over a hundred men. So can you see the picture? Judas coming from the city. All the chief priests, the scribes, all these guys have fallen in. All the ones who were followers of the, the religious leaders. And then here comes this Roman century. All marching from the city over to get one unarmed man in a garden. The multitude, they came with one purpose. The multitude came to capture a criminal. In their eyes, Jesus was a criminal. The entire multitude, they came to lay hands, lay hold of Jesus, and to drag him back to the city. The religious leaders and the bulk of that crowd were looking to kill Jesus. They wanted to do away with this Jesus. The sentry and his men came to keep the peace. You see, for they were the law of the land. They knew that this could get out of hand in a hurry. They saw the the clubs. They saw the swords. They saw them coming in this, this mob atmosphere. And they were right along to keep the peace and to wield out the justice that needed to be wielded upon whomever they were going to get. And there, can you imagine... That centurion standing in the midst of an angry crowd that had come to get this one man, him with all of his soldiers armed to the teeth, carrying their swords and their spears. And they show up and they're headed to a garden, an unfortified garden to capture a criminal. And I can imagine the centurion going, why all these people? It's one little garden with 12 men. He stood there in their midst. The centurion that day saw and heard a lot of things in the darkness of that garden that night. Because of the short hour, we're going to briefly go through those in Scripture. I'm going to read more than I explained to you. I hope that you will go home and tie these together in your head. But he saw, as we see the story in Matthew 26, in Matthew 26, he saw this Judas 
this leader of the mob, head up into, into the garden. Judas, if you remember, had already made a deal with those leaders. He had already been paid money, and he had told them how they would know who the criminal was. And we see in Matthew 26, uh, verse 49, uh, 48, it says this, Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. And in verse 49, this is where we pick up the story with the centurion. It says, Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. He said, Greetings, Rabbi. This centurion now is standing there. Can you imagine? And he sees one that he knew had been with Jesus. Go up to him and says, Greetings, Rabbi. And give him the customary kiss of the day. Again, I guess the centurion was going, Why again? The clubs? Could you see the centurion's mind in a whirlwind as he goes, we're here to capture a criminal? And he told us it would be the one that he came up to and he kissed and he kissed him on the cheek as if there was this affection. But see, he also witnessed Judas' betrayal to him whenever he kissed him on the cheek. He saw with his own eyes the betrayal of Judas to Jesus. He also saw the response of Jesus to Judas in verse 50 of Matthew 26 when Jesus said, Friend, why have you come? Again, as God does quite often, He doesn't ask a question because He doesn't know. He asks a question because He wants you to know what's going on. Judas had come. He'd already been dismissed because Jesus knew what He was about to do. Judas came and kissed Him on the cheek and said, Rabbi! And Jesus looks at him and says, friend, why have you come? Could you imagine the centurion's thought now? We're here to capture a guy you're going to kiss on the cheek. We brought all these folks with clubs and swords. We've we've come to take him and he just kissed him on the... Jesus said, friend? Could you imagine the thoughts running through the centurion's head? We see too that things escalated in the garden. Things escalated whenever uh, Judas had come and he had kissed him on the cheek. You have to flip over to to John's gospel to get the escalation. But in in John's gospel, over in uh, the 17th chapter, over in the 17th chapter of, of John's gospel, he talks about this cutting off of the priest's ear, if you remember. He talks about him, uh, him walking into this, this garden and, and this garden situation where it's actually in the 18th chapter. I'm sorry, in the 18th chapter, he, he walks into this garden and, and he kisses him on the cheek. Jesus says, friend, and he says in verse 10 of chapter 18 of John, it says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it and he struck the high priest's servant and he cut off his ear. Now the centurion's starting to understand why he may need to be there. He sees this scene happen where, where Peter, the forerunner of the front head, the, the guy that's always out in front of the, the disciples, pulls out his sword and just lashes. Either Peter was a very bad aim, or that's what he intended to do. Yet God had planned it. God had planned it because he knew the centurion would be standing there. Notice it doesn't say that any of the guards jumped out with swords to defend the high priest, because Jesus takes care of it. Jesus takes care of it. In the 11th verse of that 18th chapter of John, it says, So Jesus said to Peter, 
put your sword in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? See, Jesus is in complete agreement with what God had in store. He even told Peter, I don't need a defense. This is exactly what I needed. The centurion heard Jesus. The one they're there to capture, to drag away, tell the one who was defending him, put your sword away. What's about to happen? I'm willing. Could you imagine the centurion thinking, this makes no sense. You'd have to flip over to Luke 22. Luke 22, chapter, uh, verses 50 and 51 tell you that the centurion also got to see the compassion of Jesus in this moment. For Jesus still had compassion upon those who had come, those who had come to attack him. In verse 50, it says of Luke 22, And one of them struck the servant, the, high, uh, the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. We know that was Peter. And it says in verse 51, But Jesus answered, said, Permit even this. And it says he touched his ear and he healed him. Could you imagine the confusion in the centurion's mind? Here we've come with a mob. We've come to capture a criminal. One stands up to defend him and he tells him to put it away. And the one that he attacked, the man heals? Could you imagine what this centurion, this Roman was thinking? Yet he was there with a purpose, and his purpose was to bind Jesus and to take him away. In John the 18th chapter, in John that 18th chapter, it tells us that he did just that. It says in verse 12, then the detachment of troops and the captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus, and they bound him. They arrested him and they bound him. And it says, and they led him away to Annas first. So here he had come to capture a criminal. And he had accomplished what he had been sent to do. Yet I imagine in the back of his mind, he's still wondering why. Why? So now we move with that centurion from the capturing of the criminal in the garden to the condemnation of the court. For it says that they took him first to Ennis. They took him right back down the road he had traveled the night before to get to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. They took him right back down the road that the mob had traveled to get from the city to come to capture him in the garden. They went down through the Kidron Valley, up through the Hinnon Valley to the Inseen Gate. And they came in that gate because that was the closest to the side of the city where the high priest lived. Judas had led them directly to Jesus. The crowd had showed up in a force to capture him. The centurion had seized him and drug him away. And now they start the long night that we know was filled with fake trials and false accusations. And there, seeing all of this happen, was this centurion. And it says, first they took him to Annas' house. Why to Annas' house? Annas was no longer the high priest. Even though the Bible calls him the high priest, he at one time had been the high priest. That would have been AD 6 to AD 15, somewhere in that neighborhood. He was no longer in control. Pilate's predecessor had done away with Annas' reign as high priest. Yet Annas still had a ton of power 
even though he was no longer high priest. Why? Because five of his sons and his, and his son-in-law had all been high priests. As, as a matter of fact, his son-in-law was still the high priest at this time. So he still wielded a lot of power, and you could tell that because it says they first took Jesus to Annas' house. Annas had absolutely no power to do anything, yet Annas was looking to help find what they could trump up against Jesus so that he could send him over to his son-in-law that says, here's what you need to say, here's what he's done wrong. So they took him over to Anna's house. And whenever he went to Anna's house, it says in John 18, 19, that he asked him very specifically in trying to nail down his stance about who God was. It says in John 18, 19, he asked him about his disciples and his doctrine. Anna's concern was his position as leader, his power that he still wielded, even though he didn't have the official title. All Annas was worried about was himself, because he knew had Jesus come on the scene as the new high priest, he would have no power. When he shows up, he asks him about his disciples and his doctrine. When Jesus didn't give him any ammunition to use against him, what did he do? He sent him across the courtyard. For you see, Caiaphas, the high priest now, lived right across the courtyard from Annas. They, more than likely, there were several in the same courtyard. You think about a courtyard, you think about one disciple, do you remember? Who was standing and three times he said, I don't know that man. And if you remember, Jesus looked and they saw eye to eye as Peter stood by the fire. That's the courtyard. That's the courtyard in the middle of these houses. They took him from one house across the courtyard in front of the disciples who now were cowering in the darkness, all except for Peter. Peter was standing up by the fire. But they were all cowering in the darkness as Jesus was led across over to Caiaphas' house. In Matthew 26, we see the story about Caiaphas' House As he was led over to the real high priest, there was more than just Caiaphas there. For you see, in the 57th verse of the 26th chapter of Matthew, it says, And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. So this group of religious leaders that had gone to the garden to capture Jesus didn't go to Anna's house. They went over to Caiaphas' house. When Annas was through with him, they sent him across over the Caiaphas' house, and there they sit as the court. There they said, as, as Jesus was sent into their midst. It goes on to tell us in the 59th verse that now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus for one reason. They wanted to put him to death. They tried to find this testimony that they could use to say he's deserving of death so they could turn him over to Rome and say, now you need to kill him. He goes on to tell us in, in 60 61, it says, but they found none. It says, even those many false witnesses that came forward, they found none. He says, but at least two false witnesses came forward. Because if you remember, where two are in agreement, the law said that that must be the truth. And it says, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Keep in mind the audience. Who is the audience? It's the religious leaders of the temple. And here stood two saying, this man said they could tear all of your temples down and build it back in three days. What did they understand that to mean? He would be the new high priest. They would be out. <laughs> they 
understood it to say that they were no longer going to be the rulers of the religious sect. And it says he could find nothing but this one accusation by these two. But it says that Jesus stood before them quietly. As you read through the Gospels, you see where he stood as he was being ridiculed, as he was being accused of things. He stood quietly. He stood quietly before them. For it says in the uh, uh, 62nd verse, it says, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But it says, Jesus kept silent. Reminiscent of what Isaiah would say about him some hundreds of years before. That he has brought as a lamb to the slaughter. (laughs) And as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus stood with his false testimony with his mouth closed. Suddenly Caiaphas ramps up his accusations. In verse 63 he says, But Jesus kept silent. It says, And the high priest answered him and said, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Caiaphas asked the question, that exposed the entire world to the truth about Jesus. He asked the question, I hope that you've asked in your heart, are you Christ, the Son of God? He resorted to his power as a priest, as an authority of God, to put the pressure upon Jesus to open his mouth and condemn himself. He says, tell us, are you the Son of God? In verse 64 says, Jesus said to him, it is as you said. He stands before the religious leaders and says, you're speaking the truth. I am the Son of God. The religious leaders couldn't bear to hear that. It says they tore their clothes in verse 65. They screamed out, they speaking blasphemy. They suddenly have Jesus right where they want him. They decided now that we have the accusation, we're going to haul him off. We're going to take him over to the Romans and we're going to tell them we've got what we need. Now you need to put him to death. They haul him off, if you remember, first over to Pilate's house. Luke tells a story about it. He goes into before Pilate. In Luke chapter 23, Pilate asked him one question. He asked him one question. It comes off of what they had told him. The high priest had said that he said that he was the son of God. He comes in. Pilate looks him in the eye and he says, let me ask you a question, Jesus. Are you king of the Jews? Are you king of the Jews? Jesus, again, in Luke 23, uh, in the third verse, he answers to him. He says, it's as you say. So now Pilate says, okay, I've heard him. I've heard him say he's the king of the Jews. What does that have to do with me? I'm Roman. Has nothing to do with my power. He goes on to say, I find no fault in him. He's done nothing against Rome. There's nothing that we would kill him for. Yet they continued to press. They continued to press Pilate. And Pilate found his way out. For you see, Jesus was from Galilee. Just so happens, because of the Passover, Herod 
the head of the Galilean region, was in town. Pilate said, instead of me being involved in this, guess what I'm going to do, as any good politician would? I'm going to send him to my friend Herod, which at the time they weren't friends. The Bible says later, because of this situation, became friends. So he sends him over to Herod. So now the centurion that had stood there with the chief priest, as they accused him, had followed him and drug him over to Pilate's house and listened to Pilate say, I have no problems with Jesus, now drags him over to Herod's place where Herod is staying. Luke 23 tells us that he questioned him in verse 9 with many, many words. It also says that he was looking forward to this day which I find a little odd, says Herod had been looking forward to this day. And he questioned him. It, it kind of makes me wonder if he wasn't looking to see Jesus for a different reason than to put him to death. It says that he had looked forward to seeing this Jesus. It says that he asked him, Things with many, many words in Luke 23. Yet it says Jesus again said nothing. I don't think the centurion had ever been to a trial so quiet by a defender. Do you think it made a difference in his thought process about this criminal? For when it says that he said nothing, I'm sure that the centurion was thinking to himself, either this guy's a fool for not defending himself, or maybe he is really guilty. And he's standing and he's watching. Yet even Herod, even Herod says, you know what, I have nothing against him. And you know what? Since Pilate really is more powerful than myself, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's send him back over to my good buddy Pilate. But before they do that, if you read the other Gospels, they beat him. They place upon him a robe. They adorn him as the king of the Jews. And they send him back across to Pilate's house. Back across the Pilate for the second time. So now the centurion has been with the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the elders. From there, he's been over to Pilate's house once. Heard Pilate say, I find no fault in him. But they kept screaming. He says, so I'll tell you what, I'll let your guy, Herod, take care of it. He hauls him back over to Herod's house. Herod asks him many questions. Jesus says absolutely nothing to defend himself. Herod gets frustrated with it, but said, hey, to appease the crowd, we'll whip him a little bit. Because that's what the law demands for one who just has a casual breaking of the law. We'll whip him and, and we'll, we'll mock him a little as we send him back and we'll dress him up as a king and we'll send him back over to Pilate's house. So the third place that the centurion leads him is Pilate's for the second time in one night. Pilate in Luke 23 tells us that he's kind of fed up with the situation in essence because he could find no wrong in him. He's kind of fed up with the situation because Herod wouldn't take control and do anything with it. Here winds up Jesus back in his lap. An angry crowd is wanting this man crucified and he can find no reason to legally do it. <laughs> Pilate finds himself in a bad position. So bad, in fact, he says in the 14th verse of the 23rd chapter of Luke, he says, 
You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I find no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death was done by him. This is at least the third Roman ruler that has stood before the centurion and said, I find no reason for this man's death. The third one he's heard. He says in verse 16, I will therefore chastise him and release him for it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. He says, no, he doesn't deserve death. To appease you, I will whip him and chastise him and say ugly things about him, but we're going to let him go. We all know what the crowd did. The crowd screamed out, crucify him. The religious leaders that had said, look, he said the thing that we need you to kill him for, went amongst the crowd and said, ask for Barabbas, ask for Barabbas. He's going to let one go. Get him to let Barabbas go. And suddenly now the crowd turned from saying, crucify him to give us Barabbas. Barabbas was a condemned murderer. And he was a condemned person as far as the government went. Yet here stood a crowd saying, crucify him. The centurion in his mind had to say, three times I've heard him pronounced innocent. And they said, give us Barabbas. And the centurion man said, I'm the one that caught him stealing and brought him in. I just don't get it. And yet the crowd so was so enraged that Pilate did just what they wanted. Released the guilty and laid hold of the innocent. And there stood the centurion. He had stood as Jesus had been falsely accused. He had heard the three rulers of the government, the two rulers three times, say, this man's innocent. He had heard the crowd scream, crucify him, crucify him. He had heard them ask for the release of Barabbas. So we move from the capture of the criminal to the condemnation of the court, and very quickly we go with the centurion to the conviction of the conscience. See the centurion witness the treatment of Jesus. They beat Jesus. They placed a cross upon his back. They led him to the hill of Golgotha. And there they drove nails into his feet, his hands. They raised that cross up and they dropped it into a hole, tearing the flesh of his body as he fell. And there stood the disciples at a distance. The women up close at first. They later too shied back. There stood the angry crowd that was screaming, and he was crucified right on the edge of the city street. So those would come by and see. He says the witness, the Bible tells us the, the centurion witnessed that treatment of Jesus. Witnessed him being beaten. In Matthew 15, verses 24 and 26, it says, or through 26, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garment and cast lots. For them to be determined who would take what. So it says that while they were treating Jesus with hostility, the centurion was with his men right at the foot of the cross, casting lots for his clothes. And he could look up from the foot of the cross and see Jesus. And above his head hung the accusation that he's the king 
of the Jews. Jesus, as he hung on that cross, the Bible tells us on his left hand was a robber, on his right hand was a robber, and there hung Jesus in the middle. If you remember, the Bible also tells us that there were many who came by that were ridiculing him and saying things to him and wagging their head at him and just ridiculing him left and right. And so did the two robbers, if you remember, until one's heart had changed. The centurion, while he was down at the feet of Jesus, at the foot of that cross, heard Jesus say to one of those robbers, This day you will be with me in a place called paradise. If you think his mind reeled from the quietness of Jesus at his condemnation or to the compassion of Jesus at the healing of the servant, what must he have thought when a dying man looks at one next to him and says, I forgive you for all those things you said. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. See, that centurion, as he sat there, had welcomed the ridicule of all those who passed. Yet now, he saw Jesus, I believe, in a very different light. I believe that he wrestled with the words of Jesus. It tells us in Mark 15, 33, that after three hours of hanging on the cross, suddenly the world went dark. Suddenly the earth began to quake and rock split. Eventually the veil was split from the top to the bottom separating the temple and opening up the Holy of Holies. But the thing I think most struck the centurion at the foot of this cross, as he sat at the foot of this cross, he could hear everything that was going on. Never before had he ever witnessed a person being crucified that had the ability at the end of their life to speak. See, we read that in Scripture that Jesus spoke, and we don't take much heed to it. Yet keep in mind how you died on a cross. You suffocated. See, that's why they outstretched your arms. That's why they drove a nail in your feet. Because the only way you could breathe was to stand up. Sooner or later, the pain would become so great, you could no longer stand up. That's why, to make sure that they could take all the criminals off the cross before Passover, they broke the legs of the ones beside Jesus so that they would collapse and suffocate. Yet it says Jesus spoke from the cross. He spoke gently to the robber next to him, and then he also spoke the words that bring chills. Brings chills to me because I realize it's the moment that God poured out His wrath upon my sin on His only begotten Son. And it's the moment that from the cross, Jesus screamed out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here sat the centurion at the foot of the cross, and I'm sure he looked up and said, How was that possible? How could this man have been hanging here for hours? And with a voice that could be heard throughout all the city, he screamed, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Yet that wasn't the last words that that centurion heard from the mouth of our Savior. For after the darkness, after the splitting of the stone, after the veil had been ripped, after Jesus had accomplished that which God had sent him for, which was the forgiveness of our sins, he raised himself up one more time on that cross and he said, 
it is finished. And it was at that moment he gave up his life, for the Bible says no one took it. Could you imagine this centurion? He has gone to a garden in the middle of the night to capture a man who was not armed and took a mob with him, drug him from there to two priest house to hear false accusations placed against him, drug him to the Roman leaders three times and heard the man say he was innocent, stood with a crowd and heard the crowd scream for the criminal to be released and the innocent man to be killed. He took him from there, beat him, covered him, put a cross on his back, led him up the hill, drove the nails in his hand, dropped the cross into the ground, and then waited for him to die. And even as death approached, he witnessed a miracle when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he witnessed the greatest miracle of all. When Jesus said, Father, I'm finished. This is done. I'm coming home. Here sat the centurion witnessing all of this. What was the centurion's response? He said this in verse 39 of Mark 15. He says, so when the centurion who had stood opposite him, which means next to him, saw that he cried out like this. Because he shouldn't have been able to. And it says, and he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. See, we've not only seen... The capture of a criminal. We've not only seen the condemnation of a court, but here we read about the conviction of a conscience. For there stood a centurion that started the day off indifferent to Jesus. He wasn't part of the Jewish community. He didn't care what Jesus said about the Jews. He was indifferent to all that Jesus was said to be. Yet at the end of the day, we see one of the greatest professions of faith in the Bible. When he says, truly, this man is the Son of God. How does this apply to our life today? (laughs) The events of these two days changed the heart of a centurion. Absolutely changed the heart of a centurion. The things that he saw, the things that he heard, the things that he witnessed, the things that he took part in, all led to a point that he came to know Jesus as the Son of God. I ask you, the things you've seen Jesus do around you, the things you've seen Jesus do in others, the things you've read about Jesus, the things you've witnessed of who Jesus is, has it caused you to stop and say, truly, this is the Son of God? But what is Easter really about? It's about us coming into fellowship with God through His Son. If first you don't know His Son as God, as His Son, there is no fellowship. So today I ask you, have you ever personally known Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If so, today you can stand with a crowd on a Palm Sunday and scream, Hosanna and Hallelujah to the King. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.